are ready to get uh, today's conversation kicked off, so I would like to officially welcome everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, my name is Celia Garrido, and I head up events and marketing here at Great Data Mines. Um, a little bit about GDM. We are a collective of passionate data activists, and we're on a mission to modernize the world of data. Uh, we offer a full range of services around data and analytics, strategic planning, and education in the deployment of critical data projects. And then we also produce a whole bunch of great data-related content and events, just like what we're here to do today. So you can always check us out at greatdataminds.com to see what we're up to next. A um, little bit of housekeeping. This is a webinar, so everybody's cameras and microphones are off. But of course, we want to hear from you. And we'll get the chat fired up in just a second, um, share some uh, resources, some links, some other events that we have coming up. Um, so we are gathered here today to dust off our crystal balls and take a peek into the trends that will be taking center stage in this great year of 2022. And we have got the experts on board to weigh in. Uh, allow me to first introduce our esteemed guest today, the one and only Cindy Hausen. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us. I was typing greetings, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We are excited. So Cindy is the Chief Data Strategy Officer at ThoughtSpot and the host of the Data Chiefs podcast. Uh, Cindy is an analytics and BI thought leader and expert, and she has a flair for bringing, bridging the business needs with technology needs. Uh, well, technology offerings, really, which is exactly what her company does today. And then we have our one and only Mike Rampa. He is our Chief Analytics Officer. Hi, Mike. Uh, Mike has a career's worth of experience as an executive analytics practitioner, both as a consultant and as an employee in global 100 enterprises. And so with those introductions, I'm probably turning the floor to you. Yeah, thank you, Kalia. Cindy, how are you? I'm, I'm great. Um, Good. How are you? I, I had so much fun last night. I went to an Elton John concert. So, so I'm good. I'm rocking and rolling. I, oh, and I had a riot. I had a riot too. I walked. <laughs> I was I was like bundled up in front of the fire, guys. You're both making me jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's see. Cindy, um, you published a great little ebook on um, seven trends. Um, curious um what was the genesis of the 2022 seven trends well mike you and i have known each other for a long time and if you go back even to my bi scorecard days every year i would write resolutions that analytics leaders should have mm -hmm. i remain big on resolutions so i think trends are interesting but what's more important is what do you do about these trends so I look at what are the hot topics that the CDOs, the analytics leaders that I coach are asking me about, and then I synthesize, is it, is it hype, is it a one-off, is it just flavor of the month, or is it really something, no, everyone needs to be paying attention to? Right. Well, and based on these trends, I think we're going to find um, a lot of truth in that because these are really insightful. Uh, let's get into them. So trend, the first trend that you um, wrote about, and I don't know if it's necessarily the first priority, but uh, trend number one, uh, people analytics is rising to the top of analytic priorities. Yeah. And, and, and this is, you know, I mean, I, I follow some leaders work in this space. space. So uh, David Green, for example, wrote, an excellent book that came out last year, Excellence in People Analytics, that was four years in the making. And I often would take people analytics or HR as an example of the forgotten child. Unless you're in professional services, this was never a top use case. Most organizations would focus on things like sales, marketing, supply chain. But guess what? Your sales, your customers are not delighted unless they are being serviced by great people. And when we have mass reshuffling or the great resignation, whatever you may want to call it, we have a pandemic when people are working from home, 
they're concerned about their health, they're concerned about looking after the children, the online schooling, potentially sick parents or what have you, and their mental health is impacting their ability to focus at work. Having signs and data and insights on how people are feeling, who's feeling engaged, and making sure that you retain the best earners has to be a more important use case. You know, I, it, interesting kind of a reinforcement there, um, working with uh, Portillo's, and their uh, leader, their uh, HR leader, was very much geared in on the kind of analytics she needed to do to, to make sure that uh, they had the right compensation analysis and, and the right level of engagement from uh, across the organization. Um, you also mentioned the, the people analytics at Merck. Yeah. Yeah, at, at Merck, actually at any, any company. So um, one of the ThoughtSpot customers that speak a lot about this, and they were early, so they were already focusing on this before the pandemic, is Schneider Electric. Now think of how big this company is, 130,000 employees globally. So using data and analytics to identify the top performers and retain them was, has been part of their strategy for a long time. With the social protests and injustices of 2020 and onward, they were very able to quickly also analyze their diversity and inclusion metrics. Whereas others, it, you know, are still working on that because the data wasn't captured, wasn't readily available. They don't even know where to start. So I think I, I don't know an organization that is not looking at this. It's more a question of how well are they exploiting the data? Yeah, and if there's even data to exploit. <laughs> well, there's yeah. definitely headcount data. Diversity and inclusion data is is a little bit different because you may not be capturing some of this data. And then if you think about employee engagement, it's mining the data in employee engagement platforms and then looking at less structured data. So this might be Slack posts, meeting requests, things like this. Yep. So what's our resolution for this first training around people analytics? Make it a priority and understand the context of how people drive sales, productivity, and so on. So we, some, some leaders will say people are our most important asset, but they don't actually treat them that way. Um, and yet they really are. So recognize that. Start with the low-hanging fruit. So do you're capturing payroll data. You're capturing retention data. Analyze that as a first starting point. Mm -hmm. Then also look at the more qualitative employee engagement data as well. Have these act as your early warning signals for top performers who may leave. The other easy thing to look at is somebody that did an analysis identified that one of the top leading indicators for an employee to a trip is if they have not taken adequate vacation time. That data is readily available. So proactively look at that um, as a leading indicator. And do we have an opportunity to get out of the box too and, and look at other kinds of sources of data? Yeah, I mean, looking at things like Glassdoor reviews, that's another source of data, social media posts. I do think some people are more cautious on posting on social media, um, but if you see a decline in the positivity about a company on social media, I, I think that would be cause for concern. Yeah, my sense too is leaders have an opportunity to amp their people up. Give them more autonomy, right? Uh, invest in their mastery, um, and make sure the company has got a purpose that they can all get behind. That everyone's yeah. like, you know, I'm into that purpose, right? Yeah, for sure. So a purpose-driven organization is more likely to get the best talent, mm -hmm. 
And you know, in the data and analytics space, we have a tight labor market. So I think um, all these things are good management practices in general, but it's become more important now when there is so much churn in the workforce. I'd be curious, in your consulting practice, are you seeing a shift in these priorities? Are you seeing more use cases for people analytics? Um, I'm not seeing a lot of it. Um, even though we're constantly messaging, take care of your humans, it's about the humans. You can't, to your point, I love uh, your, your comment early on, your customers aren't gonna be delighted unless you have great people servicing them, right? And, yeah. and, and you need to cultivate our people, you know? Um, especially these days, with so many changes, change is so incredibly hard. So I, I am seeing companies starting to take a much more deliberate uh, focus around, what do I do to nurture a different culture? Um, so yeah, well, so it all starts, yeah, it starts with culture. And I mean, <laughs> So I'm only um, two and a half, two and three quarters years into ThoughtSpot, but why I did choose ThoughtSpot was the culture of selfless excellence. That was one thing. I, I cannot tell you how much it meant to me. We were with um, a customer yesterday virtually, and she messaged me offline and said, I love the product and the people. Yeah. The people mattered to me as much as as the product. That's gotta be a differentiator. Yes. All right, so trend number one's in the bag. Take care of your people, guys and gals. Um, let's go to trend number two. The analytics engineer is gonna displace the data scientist as the world's sexiest job. Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. Uh, I I wish I saw Tom Davenport or DJ Patel when they when they read that headline. Right, right. So, uh, give us a hint. What do you mean by analytics engineer? So this is an emerging role, um, and there are a number of job requisitions specifically looking for the analytics engineer. They don't measure in the same number yet as the data engineer or is the data scientist, but um, we're seeing an increase. And where this really started was in digital natives because they were already operating largely in the cloud ecosystem. And so the way you work in a cloud environment is different than an on-premise environment where you're limited by capacity, by compute, in the cloud, it's about all your data and the speed and agility to insight. So pulling data potentially from multiple or disparate data sources, the analytics engineers don't understand or didn't grow up in the world of OLAP cubes. Why do we even need that? Or aggregate tables. Why do we need aggregate tables? It's really about accelerating the creation of new data pipelines for the purposes of analytics, but then they don't want it to be a throwaway. So don't dump it into Excel or an access database or whichever BI platform in memory engine, really create it as a repeatable process. So these are some of the skills and there's just so so many reasons why this job is important and sexier than the data scientist. And the, the enabling platform, ThoughtSpot, um, classic example of enabling that self-service model and, and that self-service art of impossible innovation. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the data scientists coming out of universities. Yeah. yeah, they're all fired up and, and ready to get at it and walk into an environment that disillusions them a little bit, right? Yeah, I think both the data scientist and the business hiring them are disillusioned because they thought they would be working on cool things like machine learning algorithms. Yeah. And instead, they're just trying to get the data <laughs> or they're wanting to, they're having to clean the data. And then 
businesses are frustrated because they lack domain expertise. So this is another differentiating characteristic of the analytics engineer. They understand the domain. So maybe they know supply chain analytics or marketing analytics, um, but it's really about the analytics than about the coding. So I think there's been a little too much emphasis from a number of data science programs on the coding and not enough about the application of it in a real business context. Well, and, and the level setting too is not going to have pristine data guys. No, no. In fact, it, it, you know, I, I, I kind of had an aha moment uh -oh. <laughs> um, with a podcast guest. So Xu Shang from Etsy. Etsy just hired their first time CDO. And he said, you know, the thing is in academia, it is all about the algorithm and the algorithm bringing the improvement or the lift. And it's not about the data that feeds the algorithm. So there, so he felt like there was also not enough emphasis placed on, you've got to have clean and complete data to really have also an unbiased algorithm, but an, an impactful algorithm. I thought that was interesting. Now I wanna go back and audit all the curriculum for certain universities. For sure I'll do it, but for the one I'm on the advisory board to uh, make sure we also are teaching people about data fundamentals. You and I know this from our time at the Data Warehousing Institute, right. but it's you know concerning if the data scientists are not learning this. So what's our resolution for the data engineer becoming the sexiest job or the analytics engineer being the sexiest job in our space? Yes, so t two perspectives. If you're a hiring um, manager or a leader of a center of excellence, you do want to be looking at both ends of the spectrum here. Look at your data scientists who can gain these skills look at your current BI analysts and who can gain these skills. And so it's about reskilling and upskilling. This does require operating in a modern data platform. So you're not gonna have this in an on-premises or legacy platform. So look at that full new modern stack. So if it's ingestion, you want to be looking at products like Matillion or Fivetran for transformation. It might be DBT or Airbyte. And then um, for storage, Snowflake, Google BigQuery, Analytics, of course, ThoughtSpot. But you have to look at that full stack and recognize what are the technical skills. Right. If you are that professional, then it's about investing in yourself, join these communities, follow, follow the work here and decide what space do you want to play in. And, and, and if we're specifically talking about um, a more predictive analytics or machine, lear machine learning based analytics, um, as a technology leader, take a good close look at whether a low code, no code platform uh, is going to enable that analytics engine. Yes, right. So that part of the modern analytics stack, if you're looking at data robot or data IQ, for example, yeah, that full full stack. Right. So let's go to tr trend number three. Data mess, data fabric, data lake house. <laughs> They're all dethroning the data warehouse. Now, Ju uh, Cindy, I s I've been enjoying my career since 1996 in data and analytics, and I've built a lot of data warehouses. I, I, I'm kind of fond of them. How are these guys disgracing it? Well, so let me ask you, Mike, how many of the data warehouses that you built in 96 are still running and still providing value? Um, good point. I know Dell's is still running. Yeah. Okay. okay, and <laughs> was it? <laughs> yes, you, so you have this background. We might have to compare notes about that offline. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> um, so, so there's, it, there is a fight about this mm -hmm. because I think we're coming at it from two angles, the technology and then the mindset and the organizations that need to support it. 
but there is a common thread. Businesses have to move faster. And the idea of updating a data warehouse once a week <laughs> and it taking nine months a year to ingest a new data source, is that acceptable? I think so. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, we got to be delivering every two weeks at least. Working software has changed. Data products, yes. Machines, all the analytics, apps, absolutely. Well, and you just used a word that is a key design tenant of the data mesh is data products. Mm -hmm. So data as a product where it's, again, the end-to-end, -end, either you're connecting through an API or you're extracting, creating an analyzable data set and the analytics. So, um, but, but people are, are scared. They're concerned, well, what does this mean for master data? Um, master data, single view of a customer, single view of a product, you still need that, but it's really that there are multiple ways of architecting it and having one centralized monolithic data warehouse is not the only answer. So there does have to be both a technology and organizational fit, organizational readiness, but the need to move faster is key. Yeah, and, and I, I venture to say a lot of the data warehouses that lost their luster wasn't necessarily around the architecture. It was the way we tried to build it. We were, yes. we were doing, you know, we're going to go build the enterprise data warehouse and they will come. Um, and like you said, nine, nine months later, I had nothing to show for it. Um, yeah. So regardless of the enabling technology, taking that incremental approach, how do I deliver value on a regular continuous basis is the key issue. Yeah. Yeah. So the data fabrics too, we're starting to see um, augmented technologies being embedded into these, these data platforms, right? They're using machine learning based logic, right? I think there's a lot of potential here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and don't blink don't uh, blink too long because tomorrow there's gonna be something else, right? Yeah. Yes. State so of the art keeps changing. Um, so remember when appliances were the hot thing? Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the and and what were we trying to do? Get performance. Get performance, um, faster query execution time without having to assemble this and create aggregate tables, partition tables, all of this. So we're we're trying to get to agility. We we need this agility from a business imperative. Think of all the new questions that you have. You know, two weeks ago, the supply chain disrupted massively from the border protests in Canada, between Canada and Michigan. Seemingly something's happening in DC this week. So you didn't have to ask this question, where do I source this product? Is there another route? The way we've had to, or even as we go back to people analytics, we didn't have to ask who has taken their temperature today, who has been given um, you know, new masks or what have you, which states do we have to track uh, vaccination rates or which professions, things like this. Yeah. So many new questions, so many new data sources. We've got to find a better way. The technology enables it. It's the people mindsets that are harder to change. Yeah, and it's going to take a while. But I will offer up that some of the research that's coming out of the likes of McKinsey, um, where they're, they're helping people see the companies that doubled down all throughout the pandemic and really focused in on their analytic programs, they have widened this gap and others are realizing, holy cow, I'm a laggard. And now yes. I have to figure out how to catch up, right? So. Yeah, the, ga the gap between leaders and laggards only further widened in the yep. last two years. And almost every research firm uh, reveals that. McKinsey, Accenture, Kearney, so I, I think for this data mesh and data fabric, <laughs> the number one resolution, don't freak out. Educate <laughs> yourself. 
And don't <laughs> don't buy the vendor speak. None of this is a single technology. It's a combination of technologies and organizational approaches. And and don't you know as people freak out, I've I've also seen uh, some unprecedented mudslinging on these new ideas. Um, and, and we can look at the origins of where these different ideas came from. ThoughtWorks, Jamak Dagali, the author of the Data Mesh book, but it came from a consultancy ThoughtWorks. And I just think the debate of, of the approaches will get the industry to a better place if we're being open-minded. I mean, I don't know about you, but my my first data warehouse project also back in the early 90s, it was the company's second attempt. We had a failure <laughs> before that. So we're gonna have mistakes. It's more about the evolution um, based on the technology that's available and the business needs. Yep, and, and the stakes are actually weeks for improvement, right? Yes, right. definitely. Uh, and I'll, I'll, one more thing before we go to the resolution. I think if people continue to focus on the data asset as a, as a product and start figuring out, the time's gonna come, I don't have the answer for it yet, but the time's gonna come, Cindy, where I can port my data product to the right enabling technology, especially as one that's collaborative. If the product stays encapsulated, I can just move it around. Uh, that's where- That would be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Wouldn't so what's our, what's our revolution, resolution, revolution, resolution? <laughs> oh, well, some of them I shared, education, education, experimentation, um, and, and agility. As you often say, as Great Data Minds often says, don't boil the ocean, start small. So think of one new use case, or think of one business question, opportunity, data product, apply these new methods and these two new technologies to that, create one, one modern data product, or I'm careful to say, are we talking data mesh or data fabric or data lake house? All of these come into play. S start with one use case, get the learnings from that, but educa educating yourself and the practitioners is key. Absolutely key. Thank you for that. Uh, friend number four, are you ready? Yes. Insight to action becomes a reality in the yes. cloud world, right? Yeah. And it, well, you're living proof of it. Botspot's living proof of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought, right? right? Like, I mean, we talk about that's the ideal and as I look at the vendors that I have tracked for more than 20 years now, nobody made it readily possible. So I, I see this as a perfect storm of technologies coming together, definitely fueled by an, a cloud ecosystem, but also an open cloud ecosystem where you can connect your analytics, get the insights from those analytics, and actually push those insights into an action framework, whether it's send an email, send a text message, or order new products, whatever the case may be. Clearly, this would not have been possible in proprietary databases, proprietary operational systems, and just hard in an on-premises world. Gosh, I think about <laughs> my journey. Um, the, the enabling capabilities of, of today's technology, if I could have only had that when I was a practicing data architect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the resolution to trend number four. Well, so again, Is it's it a predicated. <laughs> a lot of it, you have to be in a modern, a modern ecosystem. But 
I think this is also where we need to look beyond just the technology and look at what are the ideal processes that the actions can be repeatable. So some actions you might be able to have with a particular algorithm. That can be automated. You don't need the human in the loop. That's one thing. So is your loan application approved or declined? Automate that with the algorithm. But then there's the broader bucket of when do you need the human plus the algorithm and identify those things and, and look for manual processes today. So one indication of a process that would be ripe for improvement here is when somebody is taking their insights from the analytics platform and they are downloading it, say, to a spreadsheet or a document or a collaboration platform, Slack or something, to take the next step. That is an indication that there's an opportunity to automate it. Yeah, yeah. when the insight is generating the action by pushing the next word itself. Yeah, <laughs> why are and they doing that? <laughs> so actions, insights to action. I got to get that in my head, not insights for the sake of generating insights. Right, right. Uh, and the other thing is uh, modernization. We don't do like, I'm going to modernize and then I'm done. We got to oh. get on this continuous, you know, it might be a feel like a gerbil wheel because there's all this change that I'm going to inflict, but we have to do it, right? Well, I try not to think of it as like a gerbil wheel because <laughs> that's so demotivating. You're not making progress. Um, I think of it as maybe hiking the three peaks in the Lake District in England or climbing whichever mountain. You are scaling new heights getting a new perspective and you're really you are never done you're going to keep moving on um solve one problem today provide new value for one workflow and then get to the next one rinse and repeat rinse and repeat and be ruthless well be ruthless because this goes back to I think too often organizations will say, well, we already made this particular investment and we don't want to throw it away, but you should think about what is state of the art and state of the art keeps changing. That is a sunk cost. Past investments are sunk costs. Did you get your ROI on that? And if I can recommend, um, I think you, you know this thought leader as well, Bill Schmarzo, um, in his book, he has a good economic value assessment for when you should be looking at something as a, as a sunk cost. Sometimes retrofitting, well, most often retrofitting legacy technology, trying to apply something new in a legacy technology is going to be more expensive. Um, and that kind of goes back to, but I know the technology, right? Comfort, it's, yeah. It's near and dear to me. Don't take it out of my hands. Yeah, this is um, so another quote from the Data Chief podcast, the CDO of Quantum Health Partners, John Osborne, something to the effect, it's easier to change 25-year-old technology than it is to change 25-year-old mindsets. Ha <laughs> ha, classic. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I hope Julie Burroughs is taking some notes on this stuff. <laughs> These are great quotes. <laughs> Right, let's go to trend number five. Um, <laughs> um, data sharing goes from competitive advantages to essential. Yes, yeah, uh -huh. and this is this is really an evolution from, or a refinement, a progression from the trend that I wrote in 2021 that I predicted that companies that leveraged external data and data sharing would outperform their competitors by double digits. And it, it, it was validating to me that then after I published that, I saw similar predictions both from IDC 
and Gartner, and that did play out in 2021. So this is, again, a, a case of a potential winner-take-all as businesses really create ecosystems across the full value chain of that data sharing. I'd like to know, are you, how much are you seeing this? Well, I am seeing a lot of that. You know, uh, another phrase that kind of comes to mind is data democratization, bringing bringing data up. Um, actually, I'm working on a, a uh, uh, with a client right now that that's exactly what they want to do is they want to democratize and monetize their data. Okay. Uh, so there's intrinsic value there. Um, the other thing is, you mentioned this earlier, bringing in this external data gives me so much more insight as to the context of these markets that I'm competing in. Yes, exactly. So I think of it in, in these segments. So you use the word data monetization. Some people use that broadly, um, really for any kind of value enhancement. I use it more narrowly when you're selling your data. Exactly. Um, yep. And so I do think um, that that's one thing. Then using that external data to better know the customer, for example, or to look for early leading indicators, I think is also key. And then the, the third thing is, is much, it's much earlier days, again, because the technology is also new. So, um, data privacy agreements, data sharing agreements, it's early days for this, but sharing the data across the whole value chain. So one of my favorite ones that I hope we'll get here is if you think about healthcare, think about from, let's say, a pharmaceutical company to then a healthcare provider, the patient and the payer. And right now that data is so siloed, but if maybe the payer could see, oh, my, um, my aunt did not fulfill her prescription this month, is she okay? We might have a health incident um, and look across that whole value chain. Then we really get to patient outcomes at a, at a much lower cost. There's a lot of other use cases, but I get excited about this one. There's a purpose statement right there. Yes, definitely. Right? Yeah. All right, so give me a resolution on this. What do we need to do? Okay, um, not becoming even further back as a lagger in the sun, not being the essential. Yeah, and so you mentioned the external data, and I do think the first thing a CDO is should get that external data under their purview where not every department is going off and buying all these data sources and potentially duplicating the buying. Once that's under their purview, look at modernizing the way that data flows. So I love the quote from a leader at Hulu that the modern data sharing approaches that really Snowflake was first to market with these capabilities, it's the end of FTP as we know it. Yep. And so modernize that data pipeline I think is good. The next thing would be we need a heavy dose of imagination here yep. because I think we just think, oh, what data do we have in our transaction system? Um, let's put it in a data platform so we can analyze it. Can we make use of it? Start with the business question, the business problem you're trying to solve. Use your imagination. If I could see this or if I could know this, what would it tell me about, let's say, consumers? Um, so newer data sources like human mobility, this this was not a data source before. Um, and now with our, our digital movements on our cell phones, this data is available. And that can be very useful to a retailer where they locate goods, things like this. So start with a business question, use your imagination, 
to brainstorm what data can you bring to bear. Is that is that enough um, I think, resolutions? I think, I think that's a good set of evolutions. I'll throw in there too, exercise that memory muscle, continuous innovation. Yeah. 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 Don't don't settle for the status quo. Number six. Environmental, social, and governance data. Data for the good. I've been seeing a lot of um, uh, publications around ESG. Yeah, it, it's interesting, good. isn't it? It's so, I would say it started kind of more from the investment community, mm -hmm. um, looking at which companies have good ESG performance here. And then it's become also a, a, a deal with, let's say, employees, a pact with your employees. But then to be able to report on performance, you have to collect it. Exactly. And then that's hard. That is, <laughs> that's, well, yeah. That's hard, yeah. Yeah, when I first saw it, I was like, where did I get that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I had to, I had to get creative. Um, I, I was pretty surprised when I read um, one article about um, it's becoming a very important influence on valuations of companies. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And and I think, you know, you look at all, all the different elements, you could break it down, um, j just take environmental things like smart buildings come into play here because what is your CO2 if you're working in a building in Florida where they keep you know the thermostat at what 68 degrees in the summer so half of us are chilly <laughs> the rest of us are comfortable and they run that all night long that that's not good when I was traveling in Japan I remember um, it was their summer months and because they have a mandate to lower their CO2 emissions, they talk about business casual. I thought it was a dress code. It was not. It was that they kept the thermostats ver very warm um, by American standards. And yet it was really about using um, energy more efficiently. Smart buildings allow better tracking of this. But I was reading about one company, uh, many employees, they were trying to count the number of toilet paper rolls because the degree of, of waste that that creates, um, that's hard. So some of this data is hard to get to. I think um, certain other data sets, like if, if we think of social, we think about diversity and inclusion data efforts from groups like the Bloomberg Equality Index make it a little easier because they at least are setting the standards. But I, I think it's, this, is, this is a tough um, new data area for, for many organizations. Agreed. And, and governance, um, <clears throat> I think people need to realize, well, governance as a whole is getting a big surgence um, and it's around the data you know proper you know uh, stewardship of the data but I'm also seeing a big push around the ethical use of the data um, including are those machine learning models ethical they might yes. be legal but are they ethical yeah. yeah so just because you can should you um, one of the things that we started doing as an extension of the Data Chief podcast is we now do, actually, you were a pioneer on the I first was. episode of the Data Chief Live. I so was. our monthly um, one-to-many coaching sessions, and uh, this month in February, we, we took the topic of AI ethics and how can you be more proactive and I'll tell you Mike I was really surprised by the the low number of companies that are proactive about having review boards or monitoring data sets for biases and I just think this is waiting for um, for a so, something 
bad to happen um, in company brand tarnishing or worse is some group being accidentally marginalized by an unintended outcome from a machine learning algorithm. Yep, and that you know, data observability is one company right in the tooling world. Yeah. You know, continuous monitoring. Yeah. All right, so one resolution that we kind of played out then was in embrace and then implement uh, the, the significance of ESG data in your in your company's culture or DNA right? yeah and and I think it's you know s start small start with at least I think companies do a lot of things but they may not necessarily track it or communicate it well so start by pulling these different efforts together so that there's visibility across the organization what are the efforts and start with the easy data. Come back to the hard data as a second path. Gotcha, okay. All right, trend number seven. Our last trend for 2022 in continued housing. Uh, <laughs> power returns to the people in the battle for personal data. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> the maybe <laughs> The maybe is the big thing. The maybe <laughs> is the big thing, sadly. Um, yeah, and, and it's funny, I try to keep these to six, <laughs> but then, <laughs> and then when I get to the seventh, I'm like, oh, why did I put that in there? It's, it's hard, but, but this is, we, so we are early days here. Mm -hmm. And if you think, you know, go back pre-internet, pre-digital digital everything, and what what was the worst thing that happened with our data? Our our names wound up on all these mailing lists and we got too much junk mail. Right. Now the level of visibility that third party organizations have in terms of where we shop, um, what we look at, what they hear from our communication devices it's, it's a lot more, and research from the Pew Foundation found that seven out of 10 people are very concerned about the level of data being captured um, about them. Now, now, people don't mind providing the data if it benefits them. So I'll give you my data if you're going to improve my healthcare or if you're going to give me that great discount at my favorite store and maybe recommend um, a hot selling item before it goes out of stock. But this same survey from the Pew Foundation found that less than a third actually feel that they get any benefit from providing this data. That's a pretty big indictment um, on how the personal data is benefiting the person. It seems to be more benefiting the companies, and that's we have to fix that. And that goes back to the ethics, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a shame. I've I've been freaked out a couple times. You know, most recently, I'm beginning to think this thing is listening all the time because I'm getting ads uh, in the morning based on a conversation I had the evening. And it was yeah. a one-on-one -on -one conversation with another individual in there. So yeah. something's going on there. Yeah. So what's yeah. my resolution? Well, and, and keep in mind, I wrote this in December. And so you put it out there and then you see, <laughs> um, will it play out? Mm -hmm. This past weekend, the Wall Street Journal had now some, some really good data as Apple um, gave people more power over their data. So now you could say, I do not want to be tracked. Mm -hmm. And you have to opt in. Only 18% opted in huh. for the tracking. So this is the power back to the individual. And it's estimated to have, I think, I think they said a 10 billion hit in revenues for um, Facebook advertising this year because 
now people that used to heavily spend their marketing dollars on Facebook ads, it's not reaching the desired people. So I do think this gives power back to the people. If you as a company are providing benefit, that's got to be your number one thing. There has to be a benefit to the person. There has to be trust. If those two things are there, then individuals are willing to share data. So this is a formula, for example, Daily Harvest, Stitch Fix. These are brands that provide personalized recommendations to their consumers based on a lot of data that, that they give. So they're not reselling that data because they know that opting in um, improves the direct experience. So build your own first party. First Build your own first-party data. Yeah, and, and this is where, um, so for some organizations that that's hard, like CPG companies, but if you look right. at Kraft Heinz, they provide recipes for, as a way of getting first-party data because they may not be able to see anymore that I'm shopping for some product, maybe that macaroni and cheese, um, on on Facebook or what have you. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So there's our seven trends and the resolutions. Um, and I will offer up to everybody on the call, check out the CBZ book. It's really um, well written, incredibly insightful. Um, and for me, it was very valuable. I, I took some bits from it and started adding it into our practice. And I appreciate that, Cindy. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. I feel like I should ask you, is there one that most surprised you or one that you disagreed with? I didn't uh, disagree with any of them. Um, let me go back through. I should have I should have asterisked this one. The uh, analytics engineering was probably the most was like, oh, what is that? Um, because we're we're promoting uh, leverage these low code, no code tools. Um, and groom your citizen data scientist. Um, but that has kind of a common, common connotation that doesn't sit well. So when I saw analytics engineer, I was like, oh, is that actually a, a career path now? So that okay. was my surprise. Yep. Okay, good. I'm sticking Thanks to it. Sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Cindy. Talia, do we have any calls to action? We do indeed, yes. Um, and oh, we have. Look at that. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Julie. How are, How are you? you? Great, How are you? great. Just sitting here listening to you. I had a couple questions. By our way. All right. So, you know, we have the passion for the humans because we do so many projects where, you know, the breakdown in success is the humans, right? So I love how you talk about educating the humans, but yet we sit here and I feel like I'm a broken record, a broken record. And then we come back a few months later and we say, have you thought about our educational suggestions? And they're like, well, people do not spend money on education for their people. And that is the number one thing you can do. Do you have a recommendation on how to get these folks to start spending money on education? Um, I, I'm gonna have to ask you or maybe push back. Do they not spend money on their employees or do the employees not prioritize their own learning? Because I can even tell you, um, ThoughtSpot has a learning benefit. You know what, even at Gartner, we had learning benefit. When I was at Gartner, I never took advantage of it. And so I think we, ha as we have to prioritize in our own careers and our own ongoing learning. And I think many organizations provide these benefits, but it's hard, especially in the data and analytics space, for us to find time to reskill and upskill. I, I have not heard, you know, maybe in the public sector, I've had some customers say, I was not approved to go to this conference and they might have paid for themselves as part of their learning. But I don't think I've ever heard somebody in the private sector say, no, my attendance wasn't approved. There's no learning budget. Yeah. So I've got, a, I've got an idea. 
I've got an idea too around that, Julia. I'm wondering if companies would start measuring the shift in performance of individuals pre and post education, they would start to see is there's a cause and effect here. You know? Yeah. If yeah. I put mastery, I get better product. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is yes, I agree with you, Cindy, that we should all be, you know, going to cooking classes, just kidding, but educating <laughs> ourselves in the an data and analytics space. True, and especially those that are on the, um, you know, the technical side, there's so much to learn, things are changing so rapidly. But I also don't think that um, these companies take time to set aside, like we always promote live education, whether it's virtual, with global teams, you almost have to make it virtual, and yeah. or on site. And you, it's a mandate that you come, you know, but you don't see that. You do not see the investment in that type of training. So we do see, go sit in the corner and take a cloud uh, Coursera course on GCP. You know, we see that a lot. And yeah. Right, but they, to. Not the same. Yeah, we even promote education for like executives. Like, why do you need to be data driven? Mm -hmm. Rarely do we see people going, oh yeah, get in here and do that, you know, so. People just don't spend money on education with their people. Yeah, and I think, listen, the online courses, I did an online course last year. That's a different experience, and we're so grateful for them for the scale that they offer, the low cost, and in this pandemic world that they were available. But I think debating something with somebody else, uh, it, it provides reinforcement, and I think that that's got to be part of the learning component. I was talking to a customer the other day who said his favorite learning mechanism is conferences. So maybe it's not just one silver bullet. It's having multiple approaches to self-learning. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get hybrid and everything. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. there is something incredibly powerful about having that group in front of you and the promotion of interaction is so much easier, not only yeah. between you as a as a uh, the educator and the participants, but when the participants start class collaborating during the class, that was always yeah. uh, the most rewarding. I thought yeah. definitely. Yeah. And Cindy, I, I have one more question. I have a call in two minutes with a CDO that I might be able to send your way for your program. Um, <laughs> are you seeing more women out there? I am. When I get on these calls, I know that you really focus on helping women but we're seeing more and more the percentages are changing. Yeah, I think in the leadership level, I think we are seeing um, more diversity of data and analytics leaders. I think at the entry levels, um, I, don't, I, I cannot say, can't say. I'd have to, I'd have to look at the data. Um, but what I am seeing is more groups that are supporting these and more male allies. So the groups that I love, WILDA, WLDA, Women in Data, I know Great Data Minds has their chapter as well. Mm -hmm. um, women in Analytics, all really excellent groups. And again, not just for women, it's for male allies. Mm -hmm. So what these women also need is mentoring. If a male ally is feeling intimidated by all of this push for women in our field, be a mentor, tell us, Tell us what we can do better or help us find our voices, help us find the next job, help us negotiate a better pay because you're better at that than we are. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Or speaking for myself. Cindy, I love it everything. when you come on. I know Mike does too. He was really yeah. excited about this. Yeah. Haley, I've heard too. Thank you so much. I'm going to leave it this point. I'm going to leave it to you guys. Good to see you. Good to see you. And Thanks, thank you to Great Data Minds. Yeah. yeah. No, okay. Uh, yeah, we have one one more question um, just before we uh, close out the session, and it's this is coming in from Francesco, and he says, "What will and should disappear from the modern data stack?" You mentioned aggregates and OLAP cubes. What else? Um, e well, ETL. It should be ELT as well. Yeah. So you know, going back to the days of um, don't don't load that much data because we're going to hit, you know, hit our capacity limits. I agree with that. Um, the other thing that I think um, needs to start anyway is that embedded data observability. 
across what the will be public. added yeah he, he's asking yeah. what else goes away yeah data right. accessibility i think two categories mm -hmm. all right cindy, what a pleasure thank you so much cindy for being here this is a great great conversation thank you for having me bye-bye everybody see you later bye. have a great day yep bye perfect